Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the best first lady of them all? Eleanor Roosevelt. And then you've got Jackie Kennedy and Betty Ford vying for second place with Michelle Obama moving up fast on the outside rail. Agent Hill, get in here. What is it, Mrs. Wolf? There's a talking mirror in my bedroom. I thought the Secret Service was supposed to protect me from witchcraft. What about my first lady's initiative to drive dark magic from the land? Ever since I watched those Harry Potter documentaries? <laughs> those are not documentaries. Don't interrupt. I've become concerned that we need to do more, so much more, to keep our children from being turned into salamanders. I'll get right on it. And what about my first lady national colon cleanse day? Why has that not happened? The president thought it was a little too commercial if everybody in America has to drink your line of bottled parsley, garlic, and dandelion juice. The president, he said the same thing about my special first lady shower heads that filter out dead goblin skin. And what about my first lady power bracelets? Why is nobody wearing them? Mrs. Wolf, I don't know how to say this to you, but... Wait a sec, I haven't seen the president in weeks. How come you're the only Secret Service person I ever talked to? Am I being kept here? The president thinks you need more me time. Were other first ladies treated this way? I'm going to listen to a radio show about that. And now he's still upset that Sarah Childress dumped him to marry James Polk, Colin McEnroe. You know what's even sadder than that is that when I was writing that joke, I didn't have to look up Sarah Childress Polk. I don't know where my car is parked right now. I don't know the names of the people I work with, but I know that the first lady... Uh, the wife of James Polk was Sarah Childress Polk. The things that stick in your head. All right, so we are going to talk uh, today about first ladies because there's sort of a, there is a kind of a magical, not a magical convergence, a convergence uh, happening right now. A very famous first lady, Nancy Reagan, recently died. Another very famous first lady, Hillary Clinton, is running for president. Uh, and then our actual uh, acting, existing first lady, Michelle Obama, is heading down the home stretch of her tenure. There so it seems like an interesting time to talk about that. And needless to say, we will have a different first lady there for uh, in the offing. And we know who all those first ladies are. And one of them isn't even a lady. Uh, I, mean, I mean, all the possible uh, first ladies. So uh, lots to talk about about that. Later on in the show, I don't think there's a connection. I don't think there's a Papulian through line, but maybe there is. Are there lots of babies named Hillary or Michelle or something? Uh, we're going to talk about uh, kind of the proprietary, proprietary precious and curatorial modern attitude towards names and baby names. And you can now hire <laughs> A consultant to help you uh, name your baby and all that kind of stuff. So uh, that's what we've got on the docket for you today, uh, that plus recommendations. And uh, we will, we'll, uh, first of all, begin by introducing the panel. Uh, the fashionably named Teresa Kramer is the uh, is one of the founders and editors of The Cut, an online magazine for disgruntled young adults in Connecticut. Uh, Kate Russian also. That's a good name right there. It's a good name for a poet, which is fortunate because that's what she is, poet Kate, Kate Russian. Uh, you can uh, find her is it KateRussianPoet.com? Do I have that? Have I yes. memorized that correctly now? Okay. Uh, you can learn more about her there. And then, uh, well, Rebecca Castellani. Rebecca seems like 
I don't, you know, for somebody your age, I'm, was, was that a trendy name? I no, no. I was named after my triple great-grandmother, Rebecca Jane Knox, who was actually claimed to be cousins with James Knox Polk. So. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, That's my name up. story. <laughs> yeah. there's, there's your Papulian through there line right there. All right, so uh, leading the intelligentsia of Collinsville and Canton, Rebecca <laughs> Castellani. All right, so here we go. Uh, we are going to begin with the First Ladies, uh, and maybe we'll begin, first of all, with, uh, with Michelle Obama, simply because she's made some news this week by releasing a song. We're going to play a little bit of the song to you later. Um, but I, 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 first of all, I mean, it seems to me that, uh, Teresa, that every first lady define, redefines the job, right? Mm-hmm. You, unlike a lot of other jobs you can have in the federal government, there is, just isn't kind of a handbook. There might be a handbook about things you can and can't do and how people have to address you and stuff like that. But basically, it's a job description that the person writes uh, from the first day they get in office. So uh, how, what, what do you think, Michelle? Obama has written as her job description and how well has she been doing it? You know, it's funny because it's sort of like as the role of women have as the role of women has changed in America. So has the uh, first lady dumb, you know, it went from just like baking cookies and decorating the house to to saying you're not going to bake cookies. Yes, exactly. Or yelling at children about eating cookies. And, um, you know, I remember when she first came or when Obama first came into office, people were, you know, sort of, you know, what's she going to do? She's a practicing lawyer. She's giving up her career for him. And it's like, well, she's got a much bigger stage. She can do a lot more. And she definitely has. And she's just been so she's had fun with the she's had fun with the post while continuing to do a lot of really great things. So, Kate, you want to build on that, amplify that? You know, she's got style. She's funny. She's got energy. Uh, this is not Mamie Eisenhower <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Not, my, to, not to throw shade on Mamie Eisenhower. Not at all, not at all. But, uh, you know, my, I wonder, has Michelle Obama with her energy and style and youthfulness and being out there in the world, has she perhaps paved the way for the next woman president, whether that's Hillary Rodham Clinton or not? Yeah, I don't know if I buy that. I don't know that um, – I mean I'm a big Michelle Obama fan, um, but it seems to me that what she's done – I'll throw it over to Rebecca. Uh, but it seems to me that what she's done has been pretty first lady specific. I mean it's um, – it's her initiatives – have been impressive in the areas of fitness and self-actualization and self-respect and healthy eating and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you just sort of can't question that. It's all been great. And she lives, seems to live those initiatives right out to her fingertips. Um, but I can't really say that, uh, And but maybe, maybe I'm wrong about this. I don't feel as though my thoughts about women politicians, one way or another, are changed very much by what Michelle Obama's done. No, I, I don't think that my personal feelings on women politicians have been influenced so much by any first lady, um, short of fictional first lady Claire Underwood, <laughs> with her political <laughs> aspirations. Um, I read somewhere this morning that, you know, the it was actually on like firstladies.org, which is a hilarious website if you ever want to check it out. But they called the first lady the mother of the nation. And in my mind, Michelle Obama was like the cool mom. Like she... Mm. She's hip to what's going on in the culture. She has got, you know, an agenda that's accessible and something we need. I mean, her her health, eating, diet, nutrition, all that stuff is obviously of vital importance in our American culture. And also she's fashionable and accessible. I think that that's another thing. I, Michelle Obama has always seemed like someone you could easily sit down and have a cup of coffee with and ask her questions about your dating life. And, you know, she's accessible, whereas first ladies in the past I feel like have had more of that sort of austere queen-like role 
Whereas, you know, you could hang with Michelle Obama. I wonder, I mean, age obviously has something to do with it, but does it also have to do with the fact that she actually has, she had two young children when she went in there, mm. whereas everybody else had, you know, the Bush girls were already teenagers off at college partying. And I, I don't, well, how old was Chelsea Clinton? Chelsea 12. Was, Chelsea, she yeah, 12. Chelsea was pretty young going in there. Uh, Amy Carter was pretty young going in there. There have been young children mm-hmm. in the White House before, but it's it, it sort of goes and fits and starts. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do feel as though first ladies, kind, you can kind of divide them up. There's a couple of ways that you can dichotomize them. One of them is, uh, to Rebecca's point, some of them feel approachable and some of them feel more queenly or matriarchal. So I, I don't think Michelle Obama is the first accessible or approachable first lady, not by a long shot. I think Betty Ford mm. uh, really almost kind of invented that role and, 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 and rewrote the DNA code of the first lady's office as much as anybody uh, ever did. Obviously, there was something very regal and impressive about Jackie Kennedy. Uh, uh, Nancy Reagan, I think, played the kind of imperial presidency yeah. role out in, in a way that in, in one of the many things first ladies do is take a little bit of the heat off their husbands, too, or or become the thing that the husband isn't. And so Nancy Reagan could be the embodiment of an imperial presidency in a way that left her husband free to seem kind of casual and affable uh, about how he viewed himself in, in office. But she would be in that uh, that other, that imperial category. And then I think Rosalind Carter, uh, probably a little bit more the approachable Laura Bush, the approachable librarian, uh, Barbara Bush a little bit more the imperial dragon lady. <laughs> um, you know, you can kind of divide them up that way. Um, and, but there's other ways to divide them up, too. And, and I do think that one thing that Michelle Obama has done uh, is uh, is that thing that I'm talking about before, uh, Kate, and I'd love to get your reaction to that, which is, you know, one of the first lady's jobs is to help define her, her husband or in the future, <laughs> his wife, the president, uh, to the country, that um, you're a gateway. So one of the things Betty Ford did, she actually sort of talked about her relationship with Jerry Ford as a sexual relationship. She talked about pillow talk and stuff like that in a way. I mean, people were absolutely, it was, you know, we were back in the era of the cleavers with, you know, twin beds <laughs> and stuff. And suddenly, really, this, you know, this woman talked about that and, and introduced her husband that way. And uh, um, One of the things that I think Michelle Obama has done uh, I said in the email to you that, you know, that, that they said about Astaire uh, and Rogers that uh, she gave him sex, he gave her class. I think well, Michelle Obama, in a very broad definition of the word sex, has given President Obama sex. She's fun. She's very physical. Uh, she's uh, spontaneous. She's exciting. People are often in danger anyway of, or he's in danger of being understood as being kind of a cold fish, a highly self-contained guy who tends to speak in terms of thought instead of emotion. Um, and she she's so much not that. And when he's with her, he's less that. Uh, and I think that's been sort of one of the things she's done very effectively. Yeah, well, she certainly has, to state the obvious, brought uh, a very particular black woman style, African-American woman style uh, into the White House. And as you're talking, I'm remembering uh, their first dance at the inaugural ball, and there's Beyonce singing at last, mm-hmm. and they're looking like they're totally alone as they're dancing together. And I think about her dancing and dancing in her pedal pushers and outside gardening. And um, I, th- I think when you look at Michelle Obama and you, then you look at President Obama, you think, oh, well, maybe he isn't such a, a nerd after all. 
Yeah, no, I, I think that's really true. And I think that this first lady has used her body more than any first lady I've ever seen. I mean, in the dancing part is a huge part of it. She goes on with Jimmy Fallon and yep. does those routines. And and the first time she I went back and push ups on Ellen. She does push ups on Ellen, <laughs> like on the show. Ellen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, <laughs> I saw an- another clip I'd never seen before, which was. Uh, she went on the Kelly show, whatever that is, uh, and there was a – she, first of all, ambushed this – she surprised this group of double Dutch kids. Uh, and then she got <laughs> into the double Dutch thing and, and took a couple of fails because that's really hard to do. And then she's in, the, in there she, and she stays in there and she's on one foot and two feet and stuff like that. I mean over and over again. And in those Fallon routines, like one of the jokes is that, like on the first one, she, she and Fallon do these really stupid kind of clunky mom dances and the names of them come up on the screen. And then the last one is the – Dougie, which is not a clunky mom dance, at which point Fallon just sort of peels away. Like, I'm not going to try to do that in Michelle Obama because she can, she does do, you know, the nene and the Dougie and stuff like that. This is, what, I've never seen a first lady use her body the way this woman has. No, well, I, I mean, it comes down to age again, right? And the changing women's role. Because the la- when's the last time we had a, um, I guess Hillary Clinton might have been of a similar age, but she certainly didn't seem to be. Mm. You know, she didn't seem like she was going out jogging anytime soon. And then, you know, Jackie Kennedy probably wasn't allowed to jog, I would guess. And then mm. so, and then everyone else just seemed like your grandma who was going to break a hip sometime in between. So <laughs> she certainly wasn't going to do push-ups on Ellen or dance with Jimmy Fallon. Yeah. You know, when, when, uh, President, when, when Barack Obama was running for president, I seriously question whether or not the electorate would accept uh, Michelle Obama uh, as a first lady, as a strong, educated, uh, brown-skinned African-American woman. Mm-hmm. And, um, and my question now is, well, will the electorate accept these other different possible first ladies? Well, she's going to be a tough act to follow. But I think also, Rebecca, one of the one thing you could say is that, you know, whoever she appeared to be going into office, and I think, you know, there was there were attempts to caricature and define her. There's the famous New Yorker cover where she looks like Angela Davis. Or, that was atrocious. Um, <laughs> and, and, and but there was a sense, well, there's this, here's this strong, tall, imposing uh, African-American woman who seems as though she might have um, uh, a, a reluctance to take any crap from, <laughs> from anybody. Um, how's that going to work as first lady? And the truth is I think she has – reconditioned herself a little bit. She has um, rewritten some aspects of her own personality. And it's even been kind of a moving target as she's gone along, too. Initially, my recollection was that initially, even at the level of fashion, which is like an issue with first ladies, whether you like it or not, uh, I think her original plan was she was really going to do a lot more accessible, entry-level kinds mm-hmm. of clothes. And she's gotten more and more oh, of, of a right. fashion icon. as she Now she wears designers. The, the two daughters raised some eyebrows at the Canadian reception both Amelia and Sasha were wearing $20,000 borrowed uh, evening gowns. Uh, and in a way, some of that I might be saying, look, I can do all this stuff. Well, that's, I think, exactly the point with Michelle Obama is that she's kind of taken all this, you know, whatever want, anyone wants to pigeonhole her into anything. She goes, yeah, I can be that, but I can also be so much more. And I think that's so powerful for a woman with this much political visibility to be saying, yes, 
I can be athletic. I can be sexy. I can be funny. I can wear, you know, more conservative clothes. And, yeah, I can put on my stiletto heels and put on my, you know, $20,000 dress and look amazing. She can be everything. And that's what the modern woman is. We're not just one thing anymore. You know, it's not like she's just baking cookies or she's got her one agenda that she wants to push through. She's done a lot of different things. And I think that as a statement for women in general is very powerful. Although, Kate, it could be argued that's the specific bar she as the first black first lady had to clear, right? You've got to be good at – in order to be good, you've got to excel at everything. You, know, you, you can't – uh, you can't pick a couple of things. Yeah. I mean, I mean that's certainly what we've said about the Obamas all along, right? That they they have to live with a certain set of target goals that are different from everybody else's. Well, you know, the other thing they say about Fred and Ginger, Ginger did everything, everything that Fred, Fred did, backwards but backwards and, and in heels, heels. which is <laughs> and, which is unfortunately a completely untrue statement. But it's <laughs> things that I mean, you know, Fred Astaire danced with hat racks and he danced up on the sides of walls and ceilings and he did all kinds of things that Ginger Rogers never did. It's kind of one of those cliches that's not. Not true, but anyway, I, yeah, I but, take you your know, point. But you know, people people uh, I know who went to school with them at Harvard said that you know while Barack Obama was upstairs or Barry was upstairs with the uh, Harvard Law Review, she was downstairs doing her own thing with you know pro bono and nonprofits, and you know she's a Princeton undergrad and she's uh, has her own career and her own trajectory trajectory. Yeah, I think her post-First Ladyship might be a real interesting thing to watch and and different maybe from anybody else's just because she's got all these existing skill sets that she can just take right back to the market. My guess is that she's going to do something like that. By the way, if you want to add to this conversation, we're live here in the afternoon, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266 with Kate Russian, Rebecca Castellani, and Teresa Kramer. Um, All right, so let's Let's look down the road a little bit. <laughs> uh, you know, before we go yeah. down the road, can yeah. I give a shout out oh, we should to the first song. mother-in-law, yeah. Mrs. Robinson? <laughs> right. Uh, well, they've, it's been an interesting family. And, and her, we actually, before we go down the road, let's talk about the song, too, So that's because uh, that's the news of the week. So um, in it, it's... <laughs> The song is kind of interesting because it's um, this is a song that's uh, meant to be bought or downloaded to support, I think, a, a group of different charities, including one that the First Lady is very heavily involved in. She seems to have been kind of the Don Kirshner or something, introducing this to the world or the uh, Ryan Seacrest or I don't know what the contemporary analog would be. But uh, it's not exactly clear to me what her relationship to this song is, but she has some kind of relationship to this song. She is the person who kind of brought it out. I think Diane Warren actually wrote it. You've got a whole bunch of singers like, you know, everybody that you want to hear uh, from Beyonce to uh, Missy Elliott to uh, my favorite Janelle uh, Monet um, uh, singing on it, all kinds of people. So and it's meant to be a self-esteem building song and raise money for charity. Uh, let's hear a tiny bit of it. All right, so that's the hook coming in at the end. The hook's, the hook's really great. I like the hook. Uh, and I can hear Janelle singing on that, too. Uh, so, um, so Kate, uh, you were the first person to kind of alert us to this song. What do you, what do you make of it? Yeah, you know, I, 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 I did bring it up, and I thought it was uh, 
pretty amazing that uh, Michelle Obama dropped a song the <laughs> same day as President Obama nominated Merrick Gar- Garland for the uh, Supreme Court. And he does rap on one, on one track, too. So. <laughs> but then, you know, when Teresa brought up the fact of the irony of Tupac Shakur being mentioned, and I'm, hmm. And then I, and then I was looking on uh, black social media, and I said, oh, yeah, right. President Obama might have nominated an African-American woman to the Supreme Court. And I said, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> well, I don't know. Well, first of all, Teresa, you should explain the uh, the Tupac part of this. Uh, you could you can hear Missy Elliott. Maybe you didn't make it out, all of you, but she's talking about Tupac. I think telling us to hold our heads up or something like that. Right. So Tupac was had a song in the '90s called "Keep Your Head Up." So it's sort of supposed to be some sort of feminist anthem. But Tupac also went to prison for sexual assault. Of the many things he was arrested for, the only one he actually served prison time, I believe, for was sexual assault of a young woman in a hotel room along with several other men, actually. So I'm always just a little... Anytime, anytime someone wants to reference that song as though he's some sort of feminist hero, I, uh, I shake my head. All right. That's one yeah. of your missions. What are the things you're here for? <laughs> I'm going after when, Tupac's they, legacy. If they name-check yeah. Tupac. But on the other hand, the, I mean, okay, so setting that thing aside. Uh, and Kate, I don't know, to your point, I don't know if it's fair to put these two things in collision. I mean, President Obama is obviously playing a pretty interesting KG game of chess with the Merrick Garland nomination, uh, you know, that that nominating somebody for whom it will be the embarrassing for the Republicans. <laughs> uh, I thought I thought President Obama gave one of the best speeches I'd I'd heard him give. I thought it was a great speech. And uh, you know, nothing you know, I think I think uh, Merrick Garland is amazing. I'm glad to be able to learn about him. But I then I, I, I just felt that I questioned after mm. I thought about it, I questioned my initial glee <laughs> that you know all this mic dropping was going on from the White House. So uh, very quickly, I mean, uh, Rebecca, one thing that this does do, and I think this is another thing you can say about Michelle Obama, not since Jackie Kennedy, who kind of famously brought culture to the White House and made the White House kind of an epicenter for the arts and culture and, and really was um, – I mean there's sort of two ways in which Jackie Kennedy is kind of amazing. The first is how she, she really kind of guided the nation through the, the, the aftermath of the assassination and it's just – it's the number of decisions that she made and made in a terrible place and, and did well are, are kind of incredible. But the other thing was, I mean, really sort of saying the arts matter. She was a multilingual first lady, effortlessly speaking French and, and speaking some Spanish uh, too. Uh, she, and, and she, you know, had just this, you know, often lampooned roster of Pablo Casals type people just marching through the White House all the time. But, you know, the Obamas, I feel, have done that you know, I mean, I think the first time I ever saw Esperanza Spalding was standing up there singing um, uh, over time at a Stevie Wonder uh, <laughs> a tribute for the – you know, I thought, wow, they've really kind of done something pretty interesting here with the White House in terms of plugging it into popular culture. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, but again, I think this is a question of um, adding an, a dimension of accessibility to it that probably was lacking with Jackie on uh, Jackie Kennedy. I mean, Jackie Kennedy was so glamorous and so upscale. I mean, she was, as you're saying, we're speaking French and entertaining all these celebrities. And it was very, well, we can admire that from afar. And she has this great, you know, people just love to look up at her and dress like her and emulate her. But you wouldn't feel as though you could kind of sit down with Jackie Kennedy and, and chat. I mean, I personally, you know, I wasn't 
I wasn't around. But <laughs> if I had been, I would have felt much weirder about going up to Jackie Kay and saying, you know, great to meet you than I would with the Obamas. The Obamas have that ability to, even if you were in the room with someone imposing, like the Queen of England, who you'd feel nervous about, they, I feel like they just make it more conversational and, and more accessible. And I think that's, for me, the big difference between what Michelle Obama's doing and her, uh, you know, making culture irrelevant to the White House. I think that's where it differs from what Jackie mm-hmm. Kay was doing. Although what Jackie Kennedy did, too, was to say to people, the arts, the arts matter, the, the really good arts matter, and they should matter to everybody, and they should be for everybody, too. I, I don't think there was, I mean, in some ways, this was, the rest of the family was this kind of, you know, Irish-American family, uh, a couple of generations removed from bootlegging. Right. <laughs> would sort of come in there. And so, in a way, she sort of said, no, look, this, this is a, a legacy that gets conferred on everybody. The classical music and poetry and opera and theater and these things all, and, and, and literature, these things all really matter. Everybody should have them. Um, but she was, she wasn't approachable. You're right about that. I mean, Jack Kennedy famously said that he would be forever known as the man who escorted Jackie Kennedy to Paris, uh, that in some ways she threw a shadow that even obscured him uh, at times. OK, we have almost no time left to talk about future. Maybe we should just talk about the, the first fella. Um, <laughs> Fomotis? <laughs> Is that what we're going to call him? Yeah, Fomotis. Fomotis. It doesn't quite really, have the same ring. <laughs> no, it doesn't, you can't even really say Fomotis. Uh, but can you, I, do, I, do you have a mental picture, Teresa Kramer, of, uh, of Bill Clinton you in know, that role? It's so hard to think of what I... I you know, it would be one thing if it was just a first man, yeah. but mm-hmm. to have an first ex-president bill. as the first hubby is sort of, what does he do? You can't not use him in a way that you haven't used other, you know, first spouses, we'll say. I, you can't just let Bill sit around and do nothing. He's got to do something or else he's going to get himself into trouble. So you gotta, <laughs> And you even gotta then, he still might get himself yes. into some trouble. Uh, he's slowing down. Yeah, I mean, this... Kate Russian, if this happens, and it's not the only possibility on the decision tree, it, it I mean, talk about rewriting the DNA code. Uh, well, we can start with the X and Y chromosomes, right? Well, you know, he's got his foundation and, um, you know, he has, obviously, he has his own life. So, uh, you know, I think they'll, they'll work it out. My question again is, would the electorate accept a first gentleman? Mm. Oh, uh, Bill Clinton? Absolutely, people love him still. I feel like, and he's so. half her, half her appeal. And of course, they have their mm-hmm. New York apartment. And mm-hmm. well, that's that. So that raises the question. Let's say, let's posit something that may not even be true, which is that the United States needs a first lady. That there, we, we, you know, I mean, uh, it might have to be somebody else, right? I mean, he's not going to do it. <laughs> he's got all of his other stuff, and and he, he whatever that is. And anyway. There's certain things that first ladies have done that he wouldn't be appropriate to do. I mean, I don't know anything about the wife of whichever Castro brother is going to get <laughs> nominated uh, to run to be the running mate of uh, Hillary. But it may be the vice president's wife, the, the Jill Biden equivalent. That may be the person who does some of the stuff that we've, w- that we've been talking about here. Good point. Yeah, I mean, he, he, I wrote down before it's going to be weird for Bill if he's the, <laughs> you know, the first, the FMOTUS. Because right. um, you're right. I mean, he's coming from a position that is – you know, if if it's the mother of the nation, he's like the the ex husband that came back, and then your parents are trying to reconcile. Like I don't know, it, it just it seems like it would be really weird and complicated. But I don't think that that should you know discount Hillary any. I don't think that you know the person yeah. you're married to should really matter 
you know, it matters for saving face. I don't think it matters for who you're electing as your head of state. You don't need to be like preempting primetime television saying, sit down. We have something we need to say. Yes. You know? <laughs> we have to talk to you now about don't something. Don't freak out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we can't talk about First Lady Melania Trump because uh, I'm in so much trouble with Trump supporters right now. And anyway, it just kind of writes itself, right? I mean, just use your imagination. Uh, will the electorate accept a third wife? Will the electorate accept a first lady who oh, speaks English? On their fourth wife, they don't care. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no one cares about that except for pundits on TV. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she stayed really away from his rallies. I was right. just—I investigated. That. I was like, "Where the heck has she been?" And she was saying, "You know, I'm my own person." And it kind of seemed like she was not on board. <laughs> She's like, "He can make America great again, I think." And I'm my own person, so I don't want to go to rallies. I was like, "Ooh, right. we're we're we'll we'll be in a different world in so many different ways in so many ways." that Melania Trump will probably not be one of the first things we think about when we get up every morning when we say, wow, this is really weird. This is really different from anything I've ever experienced. I, I will quickly add parenthetically that as we prepared for this, I, was, I didn't, realized I didn't know much of anything about Jane Sanders and I started reading some more about Jane Sanders and I discovered something – maybe everybody else already knew this – that Bernie Sanders' only actual biological child is a child he had between his two marriages – with a woman that he never married, which also would be kind of be, used to be the kind of thing that raised eyebrows. I don't think it necessarily yeah. does anymore. No, yeah. especially Nobody that cares. kid's probably what, like forty years yeah, old yeah, now. He's so absolutely, no he's, he's, yeah, he probably <laughs> right. has, had his own life at this point. All right, and Mrs. Sanders is a, is a professor, right? Uh, well, not so much. Any, oh, Mrs. Sanders, yes, yes. yes I think she's yeah. at the University of Vermont. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so we have to go. We have to take a break. We'll come back. We're bringing that style to the White House with casual culture and the All right. Uh, we're back and we're back with Rebecca Castellani and Kate Russian and Teresa Kramer. Uh, they're the nose today. And we're uh, going to, for our second topic today, talk about there's been a spate of articles, especially in Slate, um, about names. But, uh, you know, I just I guess I would sort of missed this whole thing that, first of all, there's such a thing as name stealing. Uh, there was a recently published essay on Cosmopolitan.com where the writer Megan Woolsey uh, complained about the undoing of one of her longest friendships, uh, Woolsey and one of her friends have known had known each other for 30 years of happy compatibility. Uh, they were in each other's wedding parties, through baby showers for each other, and were there to greet each other's newborns at the hospital. Everything was going great until uh, her friend, the friend in question, stole the, in her view anyway, stole the name Elsie. When Jessica, the friend, had her second child, a girl, named her Elsie. That was the name of Woolsey's daughter. And Woolsey writes, my daughter's name was very special to me. I had chosen the name for my daughter a long time before I had even conceived her because I had seen it in a special book and I loved it instantly. I chose this name because it was a very unusual Jewish name at the time and I knew no one else would have it. It later became very popular. My heart sank. Why would she do this? There are so many names to choose from. So why would she choose my special name? And if she wanted my name, why, would she, why wouldn't she at least ask me if it was okay <laughs> out of respect? So it turns out this is a thing. Uh, I'd never heard about it, but there really is sort of a thing. Last last month on the Today Show, there was a poll on baby naming. More than half the 12,000 respondents said that baby name stealing is a real phenomenon and that if parents-to-be know another couple has plans for a name, they shouldn't use it. Eh, I I just – okay. So, I mean, okay. Who's the trendiest person here? 
Oh, who? The youngest one over yeah. there. I wouldn't <laughs> say that. That's a leap. Who, did, have you ever, did you know this was a thing? I did not know this was a thing, and I was rather appalled by that story. I mean, if it was a name like Xanthipia or something, <laughs> like, okay, fair enough. That's a bizarre name. But Elsie, okay, maybe at the time she was saying it was, you know, not so popular. But that is a, uh, you know, Elsa, Elsie, those names have been, those are old names. They've been around for ages, like. And to ruin a 30-year friendship. It's, it's in cabaret. Yeah. Like, come on. It, it just seems like that is a, a really dramatic way to end a friendship. And maybe, you know, if she'd asked her and had a conversation, she had done it because she really liked her daughter and wanted, you know, that, you know, it was emblematic of their friendship. I don't know. It just seems like she really kind of jumped to a conclusion. And I don't know. I've not, I've not had the... I mean, I've had not... I mean, I haven't had similar experiences, but I have friends who have, you know, picked out way in advance names for their child that are not necessarily run-of-the-mill names. And then I don't think it actually ended up happening, but they thought a family member was going to use that name. And she she didn't go berserk and, like, you know... Terminate <laughs> disown, the 30-year yeah, friendship. Disown <laughs> the family member. But she was pretty upset about it. Yeah. And, you know, on the one hand, I sort of understand this because it's like, well... You, you know, it's like someone went and bought the house you wanted or something like that. It's but, but, you know, my family has two Colleen's, three Renee's like yeah, and there's sort of an annoyance factor because, you know, little Colleen has to be little Colleen until she's 50 and big <laughs> Colleen is dead. And so 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 there, you know, it can be annoying, but it's certainly nothing to, you know, get rid of your best friend over. <laughs> I think some of this may be a generational, a generational illusion of control, you know, and maybe we all have this at the most precious and self-determining periods of our lives. But this idea that I can control my environment, I can very, very, very carefully select a baby name that will function in a certain way and won't be interfered with by other people's plans. Uh, I don't know if this is something unique to the present baby naming generation or not. You know, what I notice is that um, people – express their child's uniqueness by the variant spellings of the names. Sure. Mm-hmm. So I've encountered you know, like four Bethany's all spelled differently or or five Jadens and each spelled in a different way. And I think that's one way that, that, that parents try to safeguard their kid's unique name. Um, but, you know, African-Americans um, – uh, have had this particular relationship to names and namings, naming in this country. And um, uh, yet another study has come out that says that if a, a job applicant, if an African-American, jo- if, an, if a job applicant can be identified as African-American, uh, that they're li- less likely to get a call back. So now what I've noticed is that there's a new trend for African Americans to kind of go back to naming their kids with names uh, that might be appropriate to British state uh, statesmen <laughs> of well, mid-century. I also wonder, you know, if there's lots of kids roaming around with unique names and you can't really tell anything about anyone from the basis of their name, if that would also go away. You know, exactly because you know when there's apples roaming this world, what can you tell about apple from their name? You know, so oh, you so, can tell yeah. something about <laughs> apple. You can tell something about their parents, yeah, but you right. couldn't say but not their ethnicity or race. Right. No. Yeah. So uh, one of the articles we read said that the, the desire for a unique baby name may not be just 
about finding a way to stand out uh, now that standing out is the thing to do. Uh, it says that uh, baby naming is an aspirational process motivated by financial and professional hopes for one's child. Data shows that high-income, highly educated families uh, are the name trendsetters, and they seek out names that distinguish their children from the hoi polloi. Um, and then the name starts, quote, working its way down the socioeconomic ladder. I think you were saying something about that before we went on the air uh, until eventually – or somebody was mm-hmm. – until it goes out of fashion. So um, so let's name the baby Atticus Hickenlooper. Uh, <laughs> and In 10 years, there will be a bunch like, of strippers named Atticus. Is this yeah. like for resumes? <laughs> I'm, I'm confused <laughs> to why you do this. Oh, this person's name is Kale – McDermott, like we're going to bring them in an interview. You can't forget the name Kale. Like I, I don't know. I just, I don't think it's like you're putting the cart before the horse with this naming thing. You're, you're ascribing characteristics to your child if you want them to be super unique that they should be developing regardless of whether their name's Sarah or Elspeth. I mean, it, it just seems very backwards to me to put this much stock. In a name, but that being said, I just labored for a month over what I was going to name my new kitten. So it. Would you come up with yeah. Claude? Claude, all right. <laughs> so you didn't hire a consultant, though, did you? Yeah. No, I did yeah. not. Okay, because there are baby naming consultants. I am launching catnameconsultant.com today. <laughs> Where were you yeah. a month ago? Come on, save me a lot of trouble. But it seems to me also. I mean, I want to go back to this idea of control because I think that's sort of what's a big part of this. Like, I'm going to make this decision. Mm-hmm. I'm going to curate it so carefully that. Um, that there'll be some predictive elements to it. Like if I really get the right name for the baby, all these other good things are going to fall in line. Obviously, I'm going to do all this other curation of my precious bundle of joy. Uh, and one thing that I can just say from my own experience uh, is that when I was named, when I was growing up, I was really the only Colin for miles around. I mean, if there was another Colin, like anywhere in West Hartford, I would know about him. <laughs> you know, oh yeah, there's another Colin. You know, drive him out of town. You know, yeah, it was so. It was a very unusual name, and my parents uh, wanted it to be understood as a, a very unusual name, and they, they did. They were ahead of their time in terms of picking names that they thought would stand out. There had been a World War II flying ace named Colin Kelly, so that it introduced the name a little bit to people. Um, and all, first, the first thing I can tell my parents now is that I have listened to more colon jokes, either, <laughs> either the colon like in colonoscopy or the colon like the punctuation mark and people calling me semi. And <laughs> so, I mean, this, you know, unbelievable misery. And then now the name is kind of, it got trendified. We read, some of us read an article by Jody Rosen who went through a period where he didn't like his name. Well, he really wished he could be Colin. Um, <laughs> and I noticed, and I knew that that my name had had sloughed off any cachet it ever had uh, when I was watching a Portlandia episode, <laughs> and it was the, they were uh, in some highly precious Portland restaurant, and they were a very precious couple asking a lot of questions about the food, and you know how was the, and they wanted to know about the chicken. And they said how was the chicken raised, and you know was it a free range chicken? And they, but it wasn't enough. They had more qu- questions, and then one of them said, uh, you know, Carrie Brownstein said, well, does the chicken have a name? And the waiter said, yes, its name is Colin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I thought, probably, okay, now it's a chicken name. Yeah. You're probably also surrounded by, like, toddlers named Colin oh, yeah. now, right? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, you can't the, – the notion that you can win this, you know, you're better off with something pretty timeless. timeless you like. should name your kid Fred, like some name that no one is naming their kid at all anymore. Well, I name my kid yeah. Joey. And, and that's another thing. Then we have kind of some merged families now where there's two people named Joey who are almost exactly the same age. So uh, you can't – and there, I think there's something great about – I mean, do you like your name? Do you like Kate? Well, it's actually a name that my my mother gave me. It's, it was my mother's nickname for me. And so – and I was one of those bookish kids who never had a nickname. 
And I really wanted a nickname because somehow I knew that having a nickname meant you were accepted in some way <laughs> so that, that I didn't feel accepted. So, yeah, I, I, I do like my name um, because it's, um, in, a, in a sense, it's self-chosen mm-hmm. and was also bestowed upon me by my mother. All right. We get, the, we get the story of Rebecca's, the backstory of Rebecca's name. Uh, and you emailed us uh, some thoughts about being a Teresa. Well, so I have this problem where people don't think I look like a Teresa. They think Teresas are supposed to be like short little Italian girls. And so they don't think I look like one. So I had this Spanish teacher in high school who was talking to me. It was my first class of the day, and she was talking to me for like five minutes before I realized she was talking to me because she was calling me Mercedes. <laughs> and I was like, are you are you calling me Mercedes? And there was a whole thing where on her telenovelas there was a Teresa and a Mercedes, and I look more like a Mercedes than a Teresa, so she couldn't remember my name. For the rest of high school, I was Mercedes to everybody. All right. So uh, there's, what the, there's the, what the world decides to call you, and it might be something very different from what your parents call you. We've got to take a break. We'll have time for recommendations after this. We have a rule here that any baby girl born while her parent is working or appearing on the nose has to be named Betsy Cayone. Greg Hill now has three daughters. Betsy Cayone, all one word. Betsy Cayone with a space between them and Betsy Cayone hyphenated. Hey, Betsy Cayone! (laughs) See, they're all running towards me. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe, Betsy Kaplan, and me, Cayone Wolf. Betsy Cayone Hill's father appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our intern is Benjamin Esty. The part of Bill Curry was played by Betsy Cayone Hill Bieber. For show pages, articles, and a list of baby names the staff of Here and Now doesn't want anyone else to use, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On Monday's show, Jamel Bowie joins the scramble. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. Um, uh, in the course of this fractious, contentious campaign season, there have not been very many silver linings or bright lights, but uh, getting to work through, read the work of Jamel Bowie as he's emerged at Slate Magazine as one of the really outstanding new young political journalists has been really fun. So the idea that he's going to be on the show on Monday is even more funner. Um, all right, uh, Teresa Kramer, what have you got? What are you going to recommend to us? Uh, first, I will recommend a couple of local businesses that I've been hitting up lately in my efforts to get back in shape. I have been um, taking boxing at uh, Bare Bones Boxing in East Hartford, where I'm pretty sure Cuddy from The Wire is like inspiring youths in the corner. And, um, and then Central Rock Climbing Gym in Glastonbury, which also has other classes and stuff. And But I learned how to belay, and I haven't died yet, so it's fun. Um, also... Uh, I watched Chirac by Spike Lee mm-hmm. recently, um, which is just I I didn't realize I don't think it was even released in the theaters. I don't I think you can only yeah, it watch was. it on it, it was it was it was yeah. oh because it's an Amazon Studios thing, but um, so you can watch it on Amazon Prime now, and it was a lot of fun. It's basically a retelling of Lysistrata. Mm-hmm. 
And um, also, I have a book that's coming out May 1st. Um, it's available for pre-order. I wrote it to finance my cat's gallbladder problems. <laughs> um, but it's about... Is that the title? Yes. <laughs> no, it's called Inside Content Marketing. It's a business book. Um, but, you know, my cat's still alive thanks to this book. So yeah. go out and pre-order it now. That's really why you did it? To finance the gallbladder? Yes, it yeah. is. I was like, um, okay, I'm going to have some vet bills. And my company had been after me to write a book for a while. So I was like, okay, give me money and I'll write this book. How old was your cat? <laughs> She's like... Um, I don't know. She could be 12. She could be 17. I don't really know. All right. Yeah. Uh, I'll probably into it. Maybe the, I don't know. It's not really the kind of thing where we can have a big book party, right? It's like a business book. Yeah. I mean, we could have one anyway. Yeah. Why not? We, have a, <laughs> we haven't had a good uh, nose party in a while. Maybe we need to do that. Jim. Uh, all right. Jim. June? June Jim. is when we have to do uh, Oh, with Jim. I, yeah. Jim. Um, all right. Well. Yeah, no, we'll we'll figure it out. We'll do a nose party. All right, Kate Russian, what have you got for us? All right, well, you know, I like to uh, plug the downtown Hartford art scene. So tonight at the tobacco shop, there's going to be an open house featuring the photography of Maurice D. Robertson. And that is at 89 Pratt Street in Hartford from 7 to 10 p.m. And people who are tuned in to... Uh, the area jazz scene will be familiar with uh, Maurice and his jazz photographs. Also coming up in April, uh, Diana Wimbush and Robert Charles Hudson, who are also connected to the Hartford Jazz Society, are going to be uh, hanging a show called Ascension at the Mallet Art Gallery, 950 Main Street at Capitol Community College. That's for the whole month of April and finally the poet in residence at the James Merrill House Adam Gianelli will be reading from his work on April 10th from 5 to 7 p.m. and that's at the Stonington Free Library in Stonington Connecticut. All right. Uh, Rebecca Castellani, what have you got for us? So the first one is my beloved alma mater, Holy Cross. Uh, the men's basketball team has had, we're being called the Cinderella story of the NCAA. Uh, Holy Cross went 10-19 and 19 in their season, 0-9 and nine on the road, and then won four consecutive games during March Madness to win the Patriot League, and they won their first NCAA win since 1953 on Wednesday. And tonight they're playing the first seed, so I'm sure this is the end of the line. But my Satyrs had, like, a crazy run. I know nothing about sports, but I know that was exciting. And when ESPN said, I, you know, no offense, but they're just a bad basketball team that's had a good run, <laughs> I felt really proud about that. My other one is my favorite place on earth, uh, On the Road Bookshop in Canton on 44. Um, it's a small place with a lot of heart and a lot of amazing stuff. I found some of my favorite, favorite used books there. I highly recommend it. And if you're in there, do yourself a favor. Chat with the proprietress. She is just one of the most interesting, wonderful women I've ever met. And my last endorsement, it is my dear not-so-little brother's 21st birthday today. So happy birthday, Michael. Happy birthday, Michael. <laughs> All right. And Michael's a good, timeless name, yeah. too, apropos of our previous conversation. Well, if you're going to go there, I have to say something about the, the – I mean, here's the difficulty, all right? So the Yale basketball team won its first game <laughs> yesterday. Uh, it was a 12-seed playing a 5-seed, uh, and it did uh, triumph over Baylor. The problem is that now tomorrow they're playing Duke, which everybody has seized upon as the most white – 
and <laughs> annoying, uh, and I guess I've used the word precious too many times today, but precious uh, basketball appearing perhaps in the history of March Madness. Uh, there's a, a wave of memes and derision and tweets and stuff like that. Uh, Barry Pachetsky of uh, Deadspin, I think, spoke for many people he, when he said the silver lining here is one of these teams has to lose. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, for all of this. So it's good to have a sense of humor, humor about yourself. I recommend having a sense of humor about yourself and things that you like because otherwise something like that would be very painful uh, to be reading all the time. But I also say go Bulldogs. This has been an exciting season and it's been fun to, fun to watch Brandon Sherrod, uh, baby Obama, uh, storm through the uh, the basketball uh, tournament after taking a year off to be a whiff and poof. I mean, who does that? Uh, anyway. <laughs> And that's number one. Uh, number two, I want to. Oh, I, I want to mention. You know, it's fun actually to sort of dig up, uh, particularly if you have that this kind of th- uh, thing sitting around on CD, um, a musical you haven't listened to in a long time, or maybe since everybody's discovering musicals through Hamilton, uh, being aware of the fact that there actually are other musicals besides Hamilton, um, and some of them are fun. So we played a tiny little clip going out of the A segment from "Merrily We Roll Along," which is a not very well known. Stephen uh, Sondheim musical. It's the kind of musical you could very easily discover just listening to the soundtrack uh, or whatever you call the original cast recording, I guess is what you call that. Um, I mean, you you can fill in everything that's missing. Uh, it's And it's actually got some amazing songs in it. It's, a, it's the arc of two creative people, two songwriters, uh, and how, well, one of them uh, loses his soul a little bit uh, along the way and, and some of the relationships that get fractured and, and maybe repaired uh, as things go along. So I'm going to recommend that one in particular, Merrily We Roll Along. You know, just pop it in in the car, you're driving along, uh, and uh, you'll find that the story unfolds in your mind. And then lastly, um, I've been asked to uh, say that Dan Perkins, the guy who creates the comic strip Tom Tomorrow, he's going to be at the Mark Twain house. And what was meant to be, was intended originally to be a kind of thank you reception for Kickstarter people who had helped underwrite the publication of the two-volume hardcover, 25 Years of Tomorrow, uh, which is uh, in the new Tom Tomorrow anthology. Uh, they, on Kickstarter, they were able to raise $310,000 to put that out. So then it turns out not that many people or some people have canceled and they have some room. So if you're a Tom Tomorrow fan, uh, there's a reception with wine and beer bar, drink tickets with admission. I don't know what that means, but 7 p.m. slideshow, onstage conversation with the podcaster Gil Roth. I don't know what you want do if you want to go. I'm going to say that you should either call the Mark Twain house, at which point they will tell you, no, that's a private reception. You can't go. Nobody told us anything about this. Or you can simply email him at tom.tomorrow at gmail.com, tom.tomorrow at gmail.com. Email him and say, you want to go to this reception. You hear it's open to the public. I've got two seconds, so I'll quickly, quickly say on April 6th, which is a Wednesday, we are having another one of our freshly squeezed uh, forums over the Watkins in School. It's about public investment in sports, uh, whether or not uh, it's the Whalers or the Yard Goats or uh, trying to lure the Patriots uh, to Connecticut, as it was attempted during the 1990s. Um, what makes sense? What doesn't make sense? Josh Solomon, one of the owners of the Yard Goats, will be with us. Oz Griebel uh, from Hartford Metro Alliance will be with us. And we're finalizing the rest of the panel as we go. There's a lovely dinner beforehand. Check the Watkinson.org website. Look for Freshly Squeezed for more details on how to get tickets. Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, getting on New Britain. Vernon, I already said that one. Avon, Farmington. Yeah, 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 yeah.
With a snowstorm coming this Sunday, most of New England is going to be using their extra layer of fat to keep warm. Take that, Michelle Obama, and the coal industry.